Well, tonight, if you do have your Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. In the Sermon on the Mount, we've been walking for the last few months in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we're not halfway. We're about a third of the way through the Sermon on the Mount. And what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is that what God is doing is he is restoring faith to what he intended it to be. If you were here before Easter, you remember the scaffolding that was up on the stage and we had some of the artists in our church restore one of Michelangelo's paintings, not the actual painting, but kind of maybe recreate, but we're pretending we're restoring because God in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, okay, this is what I meant when I wrote the Old Testament. This is how I meant life to be led. And tonight we see that in the context of giving in Matthew chapter six. Last week, if you were here, we watched a powerful film about forgiveness, and the goal of that was to help us to see the scope and the breadth and the depth of what forgiveness costs sometimes. In this passage, I want us to take a look not just at how we should give, but the heart that God calls us to have towards the needs we have around us. Next week, we are not meeting on Sunday night. Next week is what? Mother's Day, and so you would be a bad child if you came uh, next week at night. Uh, Some of us don't have moms, but we've got uh, a night that we can honor moms tonight. We'll we'll pray for some moms before we go, and next week is one of those weeks that we meet in the morning. So come in the morning. We've got two services in the morning, uh, and we do that a few times a year where we just say, hey, let's all come in the morning, because no one really ever comes on Mother's Day, we've noticed, and so next next week we'll come in the morning, because that's what moms like. And tonight we will read Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your father in heaven. Every good thing in this world comes with struggles, I've noticed. And every good category of things in this world comes with a chief struggle that everyone in that category faces. So for example, I do a lot of weddings. I meet with couples who are going through premarital counseling. Some of you are probably in this room. And if you're in this room and we've gone through premarital counseling, I've told you the same thing. I've said, in marriage, there is a chief struggle that every couple faces, every couple. And it's bigger than communication. It's bigger than the sex thing, the money thing, all that. It's bigger than that. And the chief struggle that you will face when you get married is that you are a selfish person. Married people are agreeing right now. We are selfish people, and we live our lives in singleness, and we get to do whatever we want in a sense, and then we get bound to this other person, and it's like we're tied together, and our selfishness starts to emerge. If you're married, have you seen that? That is the chief concern of most marriages is, oh my goodness, I never realized how selfish I was, and when you get married, just be ready. You'll have to deal with that. The chief concern, if you're not married, if you're dating, I was a high school pastor for a while, a college pastor, I work with young adults, and whenever I'm talking to a couple who is dating, the chief concern of kids or young adults who are in a dating relationship is the purity thing. Every time you talk to high school kids, you say, hey, can we talk to you? We're dating. And so, I, you're struggling with your sexual purity. Yes, how did you know? I'm like, well, 
That's the chief concern. That's what people struggle with. Every time I meet with anyone who's dating, that's generally what they talk about. It's not, hey, how can we pray more together? Or, hey, we're not seeing eye to eye and communication's a little bit. No, it's, hey, we're struggling, pastor. What are we supposed to do? That's the chief struggle in that category. Once you start having kids, the chief struggle is how to stay friends with your spouse when you've got kids at home. Because these kids think they're the center of the universe and you're scared that you're going to spend 18 or 25 years raising up these kids and then they're going to leave the house and you're going to look at the person you married and say, hey, remember me? (laughs) We knew each other back before we had kids, right? That's the chief concern. The chief struggle is staying connected with your spouse when you've got little kids at home. There's a chief struggle in every category. Jesus says tonight we're going to talk about, he didn't say tonight, Jesus says we're going to talk about these areas of spirituality, these acts of righteousness, and in these categories, there's a chief concern. If you're going to start being a person who lives out your righteousness, this phrase, acts of righteousness, is not acts of righteousness in the Greek. In the Greek, it says, when you do righteousness. Like when the righteousness you have in your heart starts to overflow into action, when you give to the poor, when you fast, when you pray, when you're living out justice and equity and righteousness and goodness in the world, when you're pushing your faith into action, Jesus says you will have a chief concern when you do that. There's going to be something that you struggle with more than anything else. Like a married couple struggling to not be selfish. Like junior high or high school or college or young adults, kids dating and trying to be pure. Like having little kids at home and trying trying to stay connected with your wife or with your husband. When you're trying to live out your faith in fasting and prayer and giving to the poor, here's your chief concern. You're gonna deal with it. You're going to want to get recognition from people for what you're doing. That's your chief concern. So when you give to the poor, That's going to be your chief concern. You're going to want to be seen by people. You're going to want to get praise from people that you're such a great giver. You need to be very careful, he says, not to do these acts of righteousness to be seen because when you do these acts of righteousness, that will be the thing on your mind is, I hope someone sees this. I hope someone sees me praying. I hope someone knows that I'm fasting. I I hope someone saw me give to the poor. That's going to be your chief concern, he says. So be very careful when you do it because that's a poisonous thing. I've been studying this passage for the last three weeks and the thing that's been really hard for me is that even though Jesus says that this is our chief concern, I don't think many of us struggle with this. Have you ever struggled with wanting people to see how much you give to the poor? I thought like, oh man, I hope, I hope my Christian friends know just how generous I truly am. That's not my chief concern. I don't think I've ever had an occasion where I've been looking over my shoulder and wanting someone to see how generous I truly am. And it makes me nervous that I don't struggle with that. It would be like if you met with a high school student and said, oh, yeah, I'm dating this girl. It's been going great. Or I've been in college for four years. We've been dating this whole four years. Like, oh, man, do you guys struggle with your physical intimacy? It's like, oh, no, that's not a thing for us. Be like, what? Right? You talk to a married couple and they're like, hey, how are things going in marriage? Has it been hard to be married to another sinner? It's like, oh, no, marriage is so easy. Like, what? You got little kids at home. We say, oh, is it hard to stay connected with your spouse with all these kids running around? They're like, no, it's a breeze. Like, what? When they say that, one of three things is true. They're lying, number one, right? They're lying. They're perfect, number two. Maybe they're just perfect. They don't deal with stuff that the rest of us mortals deal with. Or three, 
there's something wrong. Like they're not actually dating someone. Like they're making it up. They're not actually married. They don't actually have kids. They have like little puppies or robots or something at home. Because if you're married or if you're dating or if you have kids, this is gonna be your deal. Jesus says, if you're giving, this is gonna be your struggle. And so if you think, man, I'm in the clear, I've never wanted to show the world how much I give, I would ask you, are you giving? Are you generous? Am I someone who gives? Because Jesus says, if you do, this is gonna be the thing you struggle with. My question is, if we don't struggle with this, why? I think it's important for us to understand how giving worked in the Bible. Because I think it's very different than how giving works today. In the Old Testament, this might be new to some of you. You can write this down and then tell me later if I was wrong. Write this down. Uh, in the Old Testament, here's how it worked. You would make money or you would raise crops or you would raise animals, whatever it is. And at the end of the season, when it was time to harvest, you would take 10% of everything and you'd gather it up and you'd take it to church, right? You'd take it to the priests and you'd give 10% of everything to them and say, here, leave off the, live off of this. So it'd be like the equivalent of today if every time you got a paycheck, you took out 10% of your paycheck, the gross income, and you came and said, hey, Danny, here, pay your rent with this, right? Or Danny, go out to dinner with this. Or hey, Danny, I want you to survive, right? And the beauty behind that was that the people in the Old Testament times, they had one-twelfth of the people. One tribe of Israel was called the Levites, and their job was to serve the faith community. And so they said, you know, we're not going to work in industry. We're not going to raise crops. We're not going to raise animals. We're not going to work in the bank or whatever. We're not going to do any of those things. Instead, we're just going to serve the people of God and serve the God of Israel. And so everyone else in the faith community will give 10% of their income so that these folks can just serve the faith community. So 10% of their income did that. And then on top of that, a second 10% of their income at the end of the year, they would gather up all their crops. They'd take 10%. They'd give them the priests. They would take a second 10%, and they would reserve that 10% for religious festivals. And so either they would take it as olive oil and as grain and as wine, or they'd turn it into cash, and they had to spend that 10% of their income on celebration in the city of Jerusalem that year. And so they would gather their family and they would take 10% of their income above and beyond the other 10% and they would go to Jerusalem and they'd bring the wine and they'd bring the bread and they'd bring the olive oil or they'd bring cash to go to restaurants or whatever you do back then and they would get all this food and they would just celebrate this amazing religious experience. So now they're at 20% of their income. And then every third year, they would take 10% of their income, 10% of their grain or their sheep or whatever it was, and they would reserve that and they would give it to the poor in their community. And they would take all that and they would help, to, like, to help these people to survive who didn't have enough to make ends meet. And so they would do 10% of their income for the priests, 10% of their income to go to Jerusalem, and 10% of their income to help the poor survive. That was how they lived their lives. So some people said, okay, well, that was 20% because they would just help the poor every third year and they wouldn't go to Jerusalem that year. Other people say, no, those years they would give like 30%. So it was like 23 and a third percent prorated. But okay, a lot of their money went into living in this way. And so when it's talking about these people giving to the poor, they were giving a lot of money to the poor. And it'd be like if you make $50,000 a year, you're giving $5,000 a year to the church, you're giving $5,000 a year to go on these religious excursions, and you're giving $5,000 every three years to just help people stay above water, help people to survive. It's a, it's a big lifestyle. 
Think about what I give to the poor. It's not a percentage kind of gift, you know. When we think about giving to the poor, we think about that homeless guy on the street and giving him a dollar, sometimes five, you know. Or giving him, taking him to McDonald's. And then we want to brag about it like, hey, I brought this homeless guy to McDonald's this week. It's a different setup. And some people say we're supposed to give until it hurts. <laughs> and maybe that's a good idea. I think it might be a good idea to say, hey, let's give until we start running the risk of wanting to tell everyone how generous we are. And Jesus says, be very careful when you do these acts of righteousness, when you give to the poor, that you're not trying to make a show out of it. Because <laughs> what they would do is they'd take that 10% of their income, and, and they didn't have bills back then. It was all coins. And so they'd show up at the temple, and they had to drop them into this big, like, bin of coins. Have you ever gone to, like, Safeway, and they have the coin star? And you, you know what you're talking about? You have the big change jar, and you want to go to, say, or Albertsons, or wherever it is, and you go, like, chicka, 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 and you have to pour, and it's, like, so embarrassing, because you've got all your pennies, and everyone's watching you, and you're, like, putting into this machine, and it, that's what it was like, except these people were dumping so much money. Imagine if you took 10% of your income, turned it into quarters, and then had to show up in the church and just pour it in a big metal bucket. Everybody's like, whoa, look at all those quarters. Like my kids would be in heaven. Whoa, look at that. If you're making 50 grand a year, how much is $5,000 in quarters? That's $20,000, 20,000 quarters, that's a lot of quarters. Should have brought that many, but I don't have that much money, right? And the people were giving so generously when they were giving to the poor or in their communities or dropping it in the deal. Every time they come to worship, they would give, they would give, they would give, they would give, they would give. That They started getting a little prideful about it. Wanted to outgive each other. Wanted everyone to hear the ding, 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 like they're in Vegas or Reno or something. That's not how we give. I was thinking it would be doing us a disservice to say, hey, listen, as you give to the poor, just be careful that you don't try to get credit for it. Because I think, at least for me, and probably for a lot of us, we just don't give to the poor. So like if he's saying, hey, just so you know, the Bible says, next time you go out skydiving, you're not going to go out skydiving. It's not good advice. But if Jesus, Jesus isn't just saying, listen, if you ever get it in your heart to give, here's how to do it. He says, I'm assuming that if you're someone who follows me, a large portion of what you have will be given to those who need it. And so when you do that, you're going to be such a generous person. You're going to want to get credit for it, but you need to make sure you don't because that's not what it's about. It's a long way for us to go. Imagine how hard it would be to give that much money to the poor. How hard it would be to give that much money to the church. How hard it would be to give that much money to have these religious excursions in your life. Look at your paycheck and see where all the money goes. You ever done that? Look at your budget and realize, this isn't fun. My money doesn't go to fun things. My money goes to like, a bunch of these acronyms. What are they? What's C-A-S-D-I? What is that? What's Social Security? What is that? Withholding, withholding. All this money is going. I think one of the differences between today and Bible times was back in the Bible times, they didn't have stuff like Social Security. They didn't have stuff like insurance. They didn't have stuff like banks, right? They didn't have stuff like any of that. They didn't. I decided to pull up my budget today and kind of look at, okay, how much money do I spend on these same kind of systems? You know, Social Security exists so that people, when I don't have a job, I can go get Social Security. 
When I'm unable to work, when I'm physically unable to work, I can receive social security. When I need to retire because I can't work anymore, I can receive social security. A lot of the way that the Bible talks about giving to the needy was a lot like social security. It was, there are people in your cities who they can't work. There's a woman whose husband died, and what's she going to do in those days? And the choice was die or, or become a prostitute. And so the Bible says, listen, you need to provide for those people. There are men who were injured and they couldn't work. And, and so they can either die or the church, the family of God, could provide for those people. There are people who were living in this life who were sick and whose family had left them. Or they were left because of their faith. They believed in Jesus so their family departed And so the Bible says you need to take care of those people. And good-natured people throughout the years have said, listen, we need to set up a system so that that, that, that our society can care for people. And so we have things like Social Security. And as individuals, we think, okay, I need to care for myself. And so I, I need to get life insurance. I need to pay a little bit of money every month. So if I die, my wife is not a burden to the church or to her family, but she can be provided for by this insurance company. So I get auto insurance and I have life insurance, and I have disability insurance, and I have house insurance, and I have this umbrella insurance policy, so if you hurt yourself on my trampoline, you can't sue me, right? I've got all these different insurances because I don't want to be a burden on the community if I find myself in an unfortunate place. And our society has social security so that you don't have to be a burden on on the community if you can't work. You don't have to be a burden on the community if you need to retire. You don't have to be a burden on the community if you're unemployed or underemployed. You can get social security. And so we pay into these systems a lot of money. This is not going to go political on us in any way. But we pay into these systems a lot of money because we value as a society taking care of people who are unable to take care of themselves. And the Bible, in a sense, that's what it's mandating is that we should be a faith community who takes care of people who can't take care of themselves before social security and before disability and before all of these different things existed. The Bible says, you need to create a system like this. And so do it. Look at your paycheck. You'll see that a lot of your money goes towards these things. What, 15.22% or whatever of your income goes to social security if you're self-employed? If you work in a job where you're not self-employed, you pay 7.5%. Your employer pays 7.5%. So a lot of your money is going into this social security thing. You've got a lot of your money going into retirement. You've got a lot of your money going into your insurances. You've got a lot of your money going just in case something happens so you don't have to be a burden. So in a sense, I mean, you're giving to the poor. You're giving a lot. You're technically giving like 15% of your income into Social Security, which is set up to take care of the fatherless and the widows and the unemployed and the disabled in our society. And so, but it doesn't feel the same, does it? You don't feel like you're generous because you Money goes to the SSDI every month. And I think these systems are good. But I think sometimes when, when these systems exist, we, we stop being connected with the people that God intended us to help. I mean, can you imagine if all these systems disappeared and we all had to do this? I said, you know what? If someone needs help, there's nowhere to send them except for me, so I've got to help them. Can you imagine, just, I'm not going to call you to do this so you can imagine along with me for a few minutes. Imagine if every time you got a paycheck, you took 10% out in cash and you came up to the church and you just handed it to Larry or something and said, hey, here's my tithe. And then you went to the bank and you took 10% out in cash and you put it like in a box in your house. 
And he said, you know what, what this is for is this is once a year my family's going to do something together that's going to help us to worship the Lord. So we're going to spend it on family camp, or we're going to spend it on going on a missions trip, or we're going to send our kids to camp, or me and my wife are going to go on a marriage retreat, or we're going to buy books that we can read in the home together, or we're going to buy Bibles, whatever it is. We're going to go do amazing ministry for the homeless. We're going to do something with this money that grows us and sets a fire in our faith, just like the ancient tithe to go to Jerusalem every year and worship and dine and party religiously, right? We're going to take 10% of our income and do that. And we're going to take 10% of our income every third year. We're going to cash it out and we're just going to hold it in our hands and we're going to help people with it. We're going to find a mom who can't buy groceries and we're just going to buy her groceries. We're going to see someone down the road who can't pay their rent and we're just going to pay their rent. We're going to spend 30% of our income or 25% of our income and we're just going to serve people and serve God and release it to the community together. And and there's no systems that do that. I'm just going to do it on my own. That would be invigorating, wouldn't it? Can you imagine what it would feel like to just have thousands of dollars to give away? Thousands of dollars to serve people? To actually feel the cash going into the church, whatever, and realizing like, whoa, I just gave a lot. That would be invigorating. And it would start being really tempting to start bragging about it, wouldn't it? To want to show off just how generous we are. Now, I, I'm not going to be anti-Social Security. You have to pay into it, right? You'll probably go to jail. Is that true? I think you'll go to jail. I'm not being anti that. And I'm not saying that you have to pay in cash and you can't tithe, like, online or whatever it is that you do or you can't just drop a check. Like, you've got to have quarters and drop them in. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that sometimes the systems of this world that are set up for good things— whether it's online giving to a church or to equip Cambodia or it's social security helping people in our community or whatever it is, these systems of the world technically do the same things, but we lose the heart behind it. And we start judging all these people are getting money that don't need money. (laughs) Where's my money? I put all this money in social security. I'm not going to get it out. This social security was set up to be insurance for me, not these people who aren't working, right? We start getting angry about it. But if we actually had this money and we were giving it out to people, it would be giving us invigoration and it would help us to release how much we love money because we love seeing it given away. Sometimes people come to me and they say, I don't like the idea of tithing because I don't like the idea of paying pastors' salaries and keeping the lights on in this place. And I say, well, I'm glad you don't live in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, you'd have to show up and bring your best animal and then the person would kill it and then light it on fire in front of you. (laughs) I think these things are not just to fulfill a need. They're also to release our idolatry of these monies that we think will bring us life and freedom, but really bring us bondage. Jesus says, give generously, give generously, give generously, but be very careful that in your generosity, when you see how much good your money is doing, when you're loosening your grip on the things of this world and watching God do amazing things through these funds and finding freedom and not being bound up in your paycheck, any of that because it's all about God and what he can do through you, be very careful not to start doing it to get attention. Because if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. You stop doing it for him and you start doing it for for them. She says, so when you give, don't be like the hypocrites. I'll tell you about the hypocrites. When you give 
to the needy. Don't announce it with trumpets like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And the Bible doesn't give us a, an answer on the whole how much do we give question. And you could take the rule of thumb of the tithe in the Old Testament, but then it starts getting tricky because now you're giving like 23% or whatever with all those different tithes. You can look at the early church where they would surrender everything and just lay it at the apostles' feet and say, hey, here's the money. I sold my house. Now give it away and find me a place to live, right? You could do that. That's a little scary too. And the Bible doesn't have a hard and fast rule on how much you give, but I think there is a great rule of thumb to say you should give so much that you're tempted to brag about it. You should be so generous that you want to start, see, start being seen because of it. You should give away so much of your resources that you're hoping the world will take notice because you're starting to feel like you're pretty good at giving. And Jesus says, okay, that, you're giving the right amount now because you're so struggling with the right sin now. This is what people struggle with who are generous. So they want attention. doesn't matter how much you give. Jesus says, be generous people. And care for the needs of those around you. Release your grip on your funds and you'll have freedom. I was reading through a bunch of quotes from the first couple centuries of the church in these last few weeks. Trying to figure out what did it feel like to give in the early church? Like not in the time when everyone was selling their houses because that probably wasn't what everyone did for effort. But in the time where it kind of settled down and people said, okay, we need to figure out what's the rule of thumb for believers in the church. How do we give? And we'd see Paul go into cities and they'd take offerings to go help the poor in other cities. And he'd say, give with a cheerful heart, not under compulsion. Be generous, be a cheerful giver. Give sacrificially is a good rule of thumb. And in the early church, they started saying, it's so important that you have money that you can give to people who need it. And hey, there's going to be times when you need it and so take it. But don't be that person who takes it and doesn't give it when you have it. Don't be that person who mooches off of others and doesn't give back yourself. That when you're giving money, you do need to have discernment, the church father said. Don't just give it to people who don't want to work for it. Give it to people who truly need it. Give it to the widows. Give it to the fatherless. Give it to people who are struggling and you understand it. Be, give it to people who are persecuted for their faith. And my favorite quote on giving, which I said quote, and now I won't quote it correctly, is from a guy in about 150, 200 AD. And he said, always carry your alms. You're giving to the poor. Always carry your alms in your hand until you find a home for it. Now don't put it back in your wallet. Don't put it back in your pocket. But always be looking, God, who is this, who is this generosity for? It's almost like what Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Just like, have money in your hand that you could just drop at any time and say, oh, it's for you. And I think wherever we land on giving, we need to be people with soft hearts we need to be people who realize that if we're not giving so much that we're tempted to tell the world about how generous we are, we probably aren't giving enough. We need to be people who have soft hearts to receive when we need help. And I think a great rule of thumb for us would be, you know what, spend some time today and ask the Lord, God, how much do you want me to give next? And go to the bank, take out some cash. You don't have to literally hold it in your hand. Put it in your wallet. Say, God, give me an opportunity to give this away and then give it away 
and say, God, okay, I'm going back to the bank. How much should I get this time? And start building a practice in your life where you are constantly looking for places that you can give generously. Constantly looking for people who need help. Constantly looking not just to buy your rich friend a latte, right? But to help that single mom, to help that kid go to camp, to help whatever it is, someone who needs something desperately in this world. Always be looking and saying, God, please increase my faith, increase my generosity. And when you do that, be very careful because you're going to start getting pretty proud of yourself. Jesus says, don't go that route. This is for the Lord. It's not for the community to see you. It's not for you. It's just give generously and quietly and humbly because when you give, you find freedom. When you give, the world starts getting put back together again. That's what acts of righteousness are. They're bringing justice and equity into the world. And when you give, you're transforming this community by showing the world that Christians love each other so much that they will release the idol of the world, money, and say, it's just money, I just want to help people because that's who I love. I love the Lord, I love people, this is just money. Tonight, as you come and take communion, this is a time to remember that we release our lives to God. And communion reminds us that we think that we survive because we eat food. We think we survive because we drink water. Jesus says, no, no, no. You survive because you consume me. I come into your life and I give you breath and I give you sustenance. And so you take this bread and you dip it in this cup and you remember that life doesn't come from a cheeseburger. Life comes from Jesus. You consume Jesus in that way. And we remember that his sacrifice is what gives us that forgiveness and newness of life. So tonight, if you are a believer, that's communion is for you. It's a time for believers in Christ to come and remember the death of Jesus, to proclaim the death of Jesus, and remember that by consuming Jesus, in a sense, we have life, and we have forgiveness, and we have the ability to go out and see God change the world through us. Let's pray together, and then we'll receive communion.